0: Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org.
1: Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network, and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode, we visit with Kalisa Ray, author of Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat, a vivid collection of poems that explore black pain, agency, reclamation, and the ghost, past and present, that haunt them. Jackie Shelton Green, author of I Want to Undie You, had this to say about the book. If storytelling in the griot's hands is a form of resistance and Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat is a form of control. Khaleesa Ray's poetics are unbreakable glass knives that own uncharted and unmarked underground burrows, providing refuge for righteous indignation. This powerful collection bears witness to the fraught overlap between women's bodies and minds. Ghost in a Black Girl's Throat reframes the black body politic as sacrament, benediction, delicacy, and tenderness. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a uh, recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, landiswade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, If you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, Hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. Speaking of free stuff, if you like audiobooks and you go to libro.fm, L I B R O.fm, and uh, sign up with uh, their audiobook service, uh, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and get a free audiobook. Last thing I want to tell you right quick before we jump into the episode is that we have what's called a Patreon channel, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's a place where our authors uh, and I do a deeper dive into the craft of writing and the business of writing, and uh, you can join us there and and support the podcast when you do for uh, as little as $5 a month or $8 if you tip. Uh, We put out a lot of content on that page, and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. I've certainly learned a lot about the craft and business of writing on our Patreon page. So join us uh, at Patreon or through our website, ReadersPodcast.com. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Kalisa, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to yeah, be here.
1: Yeah, and congratulations on the book.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm excited about it. <laughs>
1: Now, Kalisa, you've won a number of awards for your poetry, and your poetry and essays have been featured in numerous publications. And this is a collection of your work that Jackie Shelton-Green, who, by the way, was on the podcast, North Carolina Poet Laureate. It's nice to have someone like that uh, blurbing your work. She calls the book a place providing refuge for righteous indignation. Can you talk about this idea of righteous indignation and how it inhabits this work?
0: Yeah, so you know, I know that Jackie kind of pulled that from my title poem, which is "Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat," and in the poem, I talk about my transition from being a Midwesterner, young, you know, eighteen-year-old something, to coming to the South and learning how to use my voice as a righteous indignation. And so, I really feel like that's what you know, Michelle Green is picking up. She's known me for many years. She's seen my transition and knew me back when I was a college student in Greensboro. And so I think that that's kind of what she's speaking to, you know, learning how to use your voice and, you know, silence the ghosts that tried to silence you is almost what I think she meant as a black queer woman in the South. That's something that I had to do often. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And this idea of silencing ghosts, there is a theme in the book, uh, of ghosts, uh, representing the bigotry, the racism, the sexism uh, that you've experienced as a black woman. Speak to this idea of ghosts uh, and also the inspiration for the title of the book and your early poem, Ghost in the Black Girl's Throat.
0: Yeah. So Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat's iteration is actually really an interesting story. So the poem and, you know, the themes of the book are about me learning about the horrific event that happened, as we know, the Wilmington 1898 race massacre. And so that was something that hit me like a culture shock when I came to UNC Wilmington. And people used to always say that the town is haunted with the ghosts of Black slaves, you know, because they were uh, the descendants of Slave were killed and thrown into the river, and so the idea behind Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat was that one, there were two types of ghosts. There were those that were the ghost of the racist militia, you know, that that slaughtered folks of color in 1898, and then we have the ghost of my ancestors that I had to call upon for refuge and healing to help me get through my college experience. Um, But the title for me was that when I was in my master's program, crafting this book with Claudia Rankin and Ada Limon, I got really sick. um, And I learned that there was something going on with my throat. Um, I kept feeling like my throat was closing. I found out that I had an autoimmune disease later, but I wanted to talk about the throat because something kept attacking my throat literally. And so when I went off to a residency uh, in New York, they said, pick seven random words from a book you found. And l- luckily enough, what were the seven words? Ghost, girl, throat. And so I felt like it was serendipitous that my my work and the universe kept calling me to talk about things stuck in the throat, trauma, you know, history of sexual violence of, you know, I'm a survivor of that and history of of bigotry and racism being something stuck in the throat. So that's where, you know, the kind of almost fate like inspiration came from.
1: Now, you said you were a Midwestern girl that ended up in uh, Wilmington. How did that happen?
0: that's a funny story too. Uh, you know, life has just been providing me just like, you know, uh, fate situations where it was meant to be. So my, um, parents worked for the city and, they traveled to North Carolina from the outside Chicago, Gary, Indiana area and learned about Wilmington because my sister is a filmmaker um, in L.A. or was a filmmaker in L.A. for Paramount Pictures. And I kept trying to find a place that had a film studio because I wanted to be a filmmaker. And so when, you know, my mom, and my dad found out about UNC Wilmington and Scream Gems, they were like, oh, Kalisa, if you want to be somewhat near, you know, the East Coast, you should go to UNC Wilmington. Um, So that's how I learned about North Carolina because I really wanted to get into film school on the East Coast. So, yeah.
1: Well, the story that you mentioned about the 1898 massacre, I think has gotten a lot more attention in the last 10 years. In fact, uh, we had Philip Girard on the show who wrote uh, the novel Cape Fear Rising, where he uncovers that. You may not know this, but he almost lost tenure Uh, as a result of writing that particular book, because uh, the trustees, at least some of them, didn't like this story that he was revealing. And it turned out to be one of the descendants of one of the, uh, you know, one of the sinners in that episode who uh, actually came to his defense and said, no, we're standing up for this. But when you found out, how did you find out that story? uh, And and how did that color your experience uh, in Wilmington?
0: So like I said, you know, I was a 17, 18 year old coming to North Carolina with no knowledge of this and they didn't teach this in my history books. So I kept trying to figure out what was the haunting feeling and the segregated uh, situation happening in Wilmington because people kept saying something strange had happened and they would never talk about it. So I ended up having to ask the matriarchs and I talk about this in one of my poems. I had to ask the matriarchs in my church Um, and some of the other black matriarchs at the university um, that were involved in the community. Hey, be real with me. What happened? What happened in this town? And so they finally told me about the massacre. And it was the they explained to me that it was the only successful coup d'etat. So, yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah, the only one in U.S. history. So your your book here, Ghosts in a Black Girl's Throat, um, in many cases is very personal. Um, how many of these stories, these poems um, are in fact personal and how many of them are based upon or say inspired by you know famous figures and other historical events?
0: So it's interesting. I get asked that a lot. And people say that this almost could be like a memoir in a way, because I would say about 85, 90% of this is my story. Um, The others are dedication poems that I wrote while in my MFA program to the Black figures that have either inspired me or have made me think about the world around us and the way that race navigates gender, navigates generational curses. And so, yeah, I would say definitely this is almost like an autobiographical collection of, of poetry and prose.
1: Yeah, we're going to be diving into three of your pieces here uh, as we talk about the three sections uh, of the book. And uh, But before we do that, uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about the difficulty of writing about Topics uh, like racism, bigotry, and sexism, and uh, uh, maybe some of the do's and the don'ts, or maybe I don't even know if that's the right question, but you know, some of the challenges, perhaps, of doing that.
0: Well, you know, I was super blessed to have a professor that made me feel empowered to do so. So you don't get much better than having Claudia Rankin as your professor and your thesis advisor that helped you create the book. So I think having Ada Limon and Kathy Smith Bowers and Claudia Rankin and Maury Creech, these, you know, these impeccable world-renowned poets, they all gave me permission. So I would say that first that I wasn't scared to talk about the racism and bigotry. Ironically enough, the topic that was the most fraught and sensitive was family issues and generational curses. Because I actually out myself, you know, in this book about my queerness. That's huge. You know, I out my dad um, as, you know, my perpetrator of abuse. I, I out a lot of big topics in this book. And I don't think people realize how huge that is. So I will say in crafting kind of scary, sensitive pieces like that, I really had to call upon those mentors, you know, like Claudia, like Ada, to help me navigate that and talk about that with intentionality and sensitivity. And then when we talk about racism and bigotry, you know, I someone once told me that poems speak either through you or to you. And for some reason, uh, while I was in my master's program, and after I did my research about Wilmington and the history of racism in North Carolina, the poems just like flooded through me. So I then had to go back and call upon, you know, my editors and people like Mahogany Brown and, you know, uh, Maya Marshall and folks that I trust, trusted with those sensitive topics. And those mentors and those editors really helped me shape them in a way that wasn't, you um, they told me, don't shape these poems in a way that makes your situation seem like an isolated event. Shape it in a way that shows that racism and bigotry is not new, that this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And you're speaking to the macro, the larger subject at hand. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. So you talk about trying to build a home in the place where Confederate symbols still stand in the center of town um, and about coping with the Ghostliness, as you say, of the of the present day South. Uh, you know, my daughter, who's gay, who grew up in Charlotte here, now lives in Durham. Um, she, I think, struggles with some of these same issues from the from from that side of things. Um, how is it that uh, you've come to terms with some of what's going on, or, or or how do you think about the world? Is it are we are we moving forward? Uh, is the attention we're getting helping at all? Um, what are your What are your thoughts on that?
0: So, to answer your first question about how am I coping and navigating it, I would say community. I I got really lucky when I first got to Wilmington to tap into my activist spirit. So, you know, my parents were both af- activists, you know, in the civil rights movement. And so something in me, when I hit Wilmington, when I hit North Carolina, I became a very staunch activist and advocate um, for women's rights, for queer rights, uh, for Black rights. And so, just to answer your first question i think the community the activist community that i was immediately immersed into in north carolina um and the fact that i started you know activist feminist nonprofits literally straight out of college so i was you know blessed to have a community around me that helped me Navigate, but also helped me see that progress doesn't happen overnight, that that's something that we are slowly making strides towards, but we've got a lot of work to do. So Mm. I think that because I've seen the behind the scenes of knowing the many layered, textured issues that we have just in our nation um, with access and accessibility and inclusivity and equity, I think that what I do know is true. Is that we have come leaps and bounds because I think now so many people are seeing that it's just not a monolithic fight, that it's a multidimensional fight that we have to, you know, address here when we talk about equity and, and inclusion. And so, yeah, just to answer your question, I think we're making slow strides, but we've got a lot of work to do. So
1: Yeah, yeah. it sounds sounds like you're coping a little bit by being active, you know, by by getting out there, not only in your community groups, but also talking about it and writing about it. Let's do this. We've got three readings from the book. you structured your book into three sections. One is called Fire. The other one's called Water and Wind. And the third section is Earth and Spirit. And in the Fire section, we see poems that cover topics such as the South's legacy of racism, uh, the commodification, dehumanization of black bodies, taking up space, deferring to white spaces, southern food, Uh, the appropriation of black language, jokes, dances, music, and being biracial. Um, So what is the metaphor of fire speaking to as it relates to these topics?
0: So I organized the book in these elements because I think that they kind of almost play on what we were talking about when we think of healing, progress, and um, reclamation. So I wanted fire to represent the burning down of something before you can reclaim it and build it back up. And so all of these topics talk about the breaking down of the black self and the breaking down of the South. I think it's a metaphor for you have to break down these issues to their lowest selves to build it back up. And so that's what I envisioned for this first first section.
1: All right. And one of the pieces we've got for the first section is mad blackbird. Um, You've got a little, uh, beginning piece to Maya Angelou that uh, I think you're going to include in your reading. And then, uh, uh, so if you would, please share that, uh, poem with us.
0: Mad black bird epigraph. The cage bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown, but longed for still Maya Angelou from cage bird. A woman walked up to me and told me I was beautiful. Eyes stark and mesmerized, started to lift her hand and lean in to touch my feather, the crest of my head. Gawking, she called her other friends over to pet and view my exotic, my natural. And if I had swatted her away, screamed and pushed her, I would have been called beast, wild animal, untamed. How do you cope? They say Can I touch it? So wide, looks so full, so big, can I keep her? When everyone tells you to hide your true self but is wearing the features they made you hate, your body doesn't know whether to change its stripes or break the bars and run. It's hard to look in the mirror to not hear their voices. You'd be prettier if you bleached, snipped a wing or two, trimmed the fat. If your squawk wasn't so riotous, I am losing myself. Been here so long, this cage feels like a home, more like a place to rest under than escape. The more they tell me to change, the harder it is to remember what I loved about myself. My long neck, full beak, plumage like ink. This beautiful mahogany tail that spans majestic, crooked appendix that keeps on waving.
1: There is some fire in that poem. (laughs) i'm assuming this is one of the poems that is from your personal experiences and, and and things that you've encountered but you've tried as you said you know make it accessible to a broader audience it speaks to some extent about boundaries right that that sometimes people don't know how to recognize
0: You know what's interesting? This is not a autobiographical piece. So this on the theme of what we were talking about, I am the narrator and the co-creator of the Wilmington 1898 Invisibility Project. So I was commissioned to study the history of appropriation, uh, gentrification, um, and... Uh, stereotypes and the the history and the effect of what Wilmington 1898 had on the city. And we do that through song, dance, and poetry. And so this piece was actually a monologue that I wrote for the performance and the art exhibit that talks about cultural appropriation um, and fetishization of the Black woman. And so while, you know, I leaned on my personal experiences, this is not one that, you know, I thought about a specific incident that happened to me. This was written specifically for the art exhibit.
1: Interesting. But you probably have experienced it.
0: Oh, of course. Like I said, I mean, all black women or black and brown women in America have experienced the same exact situation. And so I, of course, leaned on, you know, as someone who was the only black girl in her elementary, (laughs) private elementary and middle school. I've had this happen to me 10 times over and through college and adulthood. So, of course. Yeah. I mean, this is something that happens often to me.
1: So. As you move from these, uh, you describe this uh, you know the fire, it's kind of like the Phoenix. it has to burn up before you can it can gain new life here. You got the water and the wind, and we see poems there that deal with rape culture, love and relationships, miscarriage, and loss. And you've got a piece that you're going to read. From there. And I believe we did a little switch. So we're going to be doing, let's see, Into the Woods. Is that right? Yeah, we can do Into the Woods. Anything you want to do to set this up before you read it?
0: Yeah, so we transition out of, you know, race issues into gender. And we start talking about how (laughs) being a young 17 year old and have not been fully given the talk before I left for college and, and not really knowing anything about how to navigate sexuality and boys and rape culture and toxic masculinity. So that's what this poem is all about. I must have wandered into the woods with open palms, stitches gushing, my 20-year-old something wounds advertising there is broken here. All my scar tissue, a magnet for men obsessed with mending boys that respond to women's cries like an invitation to console and fill me with delusions of grandeur. I was the project of wannabe martyrs that bore the cross of a thief, saviors that got drunk off the wine of women's wailing vulnerability, collecting tears like notches, sonic ears tuned to the pitch of damsels in distress. Because what's a hero without the conquest quest, and crumbling? In this script, he is the lifeguard and I the drowning thing he comes running to on steed to tower window in hopes of being declared a knight when most knights are dogs in wolves clothing and most dogs are desperate searching for scraps. The test is how fast he arrives at the scene of the burning building, how quickly he pries his claws from around the neck of the red riding woman. What he doesn't know is I've got a store collection of knives in the pocket of my bruised and fractured frame, train in the skill of bullshit daggers, perfect my archery for he who thinks my body is made of straw. And all my mouths have compasses, hearts have bow and arrows, and I use Prince Charming's cheating ass for target practice.
1: <laughs> okay, <clears throat> beware! You're 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 in the water wind section now, right?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> talk t- talk about the metaphor of water wind as it relates to this poem and others that fill this section.
0: So for me, you know, gender is fluid. Sexuality is fluid. And so, of course, you know, as I tried to really define my sexuality and my identity and reclaim that and reclaim my feminist and my womanhood, I thought that it was only fitting to put it in wind and water because I think that the metaphor is that while we as women or women identified folks are trying to be contained in a box, we bust out of the box like water. You know, we rush and wave and crash and move. And so uh, we are free like wind. You know, I have that poem in there called Wind Watching that talks about Dorothy. And so I think that that really sums up the woman in its best self. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, it doesn't leave the uh, knights in a very good category here. When most knights are dogs in wolf's clothing and most dogs are desperate. <laughs> That's a bit of a con- condemnation of the whole group, right? <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're speaking to strength there. You're speaking to the fortitude of the self uh, and and standing up uh, to some extent in this poem.
0: I am and I should correct myself. I'm not speaking to all night. Nice. You know, I'm married to an amazing man. I think what I'm really speaking to is yes, the fortitude of the woman, but also to the types of men that are like this, those that hurt other women. Those aren't the ones that I want stand, to stand with. So that's really what this poem is talking about. Everything that I learned that the matriarchs didn't tell me when I first started dating and fell into the traps of toxic relationships. So
1: Yeah, no, I I like the spirit of it, though. Um, We've got a third section here dealing with earth and spirit, and we see poems about family relationships, but also banned books and whitewashing. Um, Why earth spirit for these types of topics?
0: Oh, because, you know, I had to call upon the spirits of my matriarchs and my ancestors to really get through living in the South, you know, I needed their help to help me find my voice, to help me center my healing. Uh, And that's healing, not just from racism, but from generational curses and being a survivor of of, um, abuse as a child and into adulthood. So that's really where this grounding, this earth grounding came from when I talk about generational curses, but also you've got spirit because those spirits of my ancestors are always tapped into my work, but always tapped into, um, you know, my healing process that I do on a personal level. So I thought earth and spirit were really fitting for this section.
1: That's great. So epilogue for band books, I believe is your choice, uh, for, to read from this section. Um, anything you want to say to set this up, including maybe the dedication?
0: Yeah, so crazy enough, Alice Walker and Maya Angelou and a ton of you know famous black authors came to Wilmington. And so I've just been blessed to, to meet all of them and hear them speak. And so I sat in on Alice Walker's talk about banned books and this is what this poem is for.
1: All right, anytime you're ready, take it away.
0: So this is Epilogue for Banned Books for Alice Walker. Under the influence of spotlights and microphones and the scrutiny of the American public, Some speak of assimilation as if it were this natural occurrence. This evolution of kinky to straight, brown to bleach. The inevitable result of stewing in the melting pot of American culture. Somehow our brown turns invisible with a slight tongue trick. I have watched so many grace stages spin webs of lies to moderators and hosts, then turn chameleon racial shape shifter with ambiguous opinions on the matters that matter. But not you. Your work whispers for colorful narratives to come back from the margins, for our histories to climb out of the shadows and speak until the masses listen, until our inconvenient ink is no longer seen as a filthy smudge on America's reputation, but a title of America's cultural anthology. If we were to remove us and all our sullen truths, what a vacant canon we would be without the griots preserving this strife, capturing each angri- anguish, freezing these pages as time capsules. Our nation on the cusp of becoming a collection of all the words we fear, all the little truths we whitewash and black out are coming back to haunt us. Like you, I wait for the day when each child knows your name, when we race towards what we fear, and relish in the unknown.
1: That's very nice. Um, I, I was drawn to, uh, given our earlier conversation, the line about uh, speaking until the masses listen, because I think that also speaks to what you're doing to some extent with uh, with your poetry here uh, and your activism. I, I wonder if... if uh, when you say our nation on the cusp of becoming a collection of all the words we fear, what is your fear at the moment about our, about our nation?
0: That we haven't gone very far. You know, I wrote this when, um, I I edited this when Trump was about to be in office and I was terrified for myself and so many others. And so I think my fear is that now even with the current, um, regime in office and some of the, um, I call it faux activism and faux progressiveness that, um, we are convinced that's happening. We're not moving much, you know, we're, we're moving at a snail's pace towards equity and inclusion. And I am always so terrified of the generation that comes after me to even birth the child is terrifying for me, um, to have them live in this world um, where there's so many lies that get perpetuated and so many things that are left out of our history book and so many fake truths. So that's what I'm really, really scared of, uh, that we need to go so far in a short amount of time. So, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah.
1: So as a recovering trial lawyer and practice law for many years, there was a, there's a saying, you know, the wheels of justice turn slowly. And, uh, I think that's probably true as well with, the uh, you know, what we're dealing with on a social and cultural level, you know, in this country. uh, As long as they're grinding in the right direction, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll get there at some point. Um, Hey, uh, we're going to have a few writing life questions here, um, but I want to tell the listeners that we're going to be jumping over to Patreon in just a moment to do a... to do a little bit of a conversation on uh, writing and publishing as a multi-genre author, because uh, Kalisa is a, she's a poet, a journalist, uh, an essayist, a soon-to-be novelist, uh, editor, teacher. So we're going to talk about uh, you know writing and publishing, given all those different ways that you can speak yourself into the world and in, in ink. Uh, hey, and speaking of that, let me just ask this. This is kind of related to the writing life, but uh, you have something that you call, let me get it right here. Is it uh, Ink? Uh, Thinking Ink? Uh, can you speak to that?
0: Yeah. So I uh, started a BIPOC newsletter and collective with these other amazing uh, writers and editors that work for other literary magazines. We decided to join together Uh, and really cut down gatekeeping of resources and information for young emerging writers. So we do a monthly newsletter that comes out on Thursdays. It started as just like a workshop group, you know, and then turned into uh, a collective of writers that wanted a monthly newsletter of resources, opportunities, stories, um, and how to's. So that's what we publish every month.
1: That's great. We do some of that here on the podcast. We've got a community blog uh, for any writers that are listening. Uh, you can share your readerly and writerly content on the blog. It's it's free. And as is this podcast, it's free. Uh, what about the Women Speak series? That's another thing you're involved in.
0: Oh, my goodness. The the amazing child prodigy, Gaia Rayshan. If you don't know her, you have to because she's a Um, young 16-year-old, award-winning, renowned poet who just actually got into college. So she truly is a a child prodigy. She reached out to me uh, right before she got accepted into university at 16, and she saw a tweet from me. And she said, you said you wanted to highlight BIPOC, queer and women-identified poets with a reading series, and I'm down for that, let's do it. And so literally we just opened it up and we immediately had Patricia Smith, you know, Samita Chakraborty, Ada Limon, these big names just reached out to us and said that they wanted to read. So it's been, it's been amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And listeners, uh, in our show notes, we've got a a link to Kalisa's website. You can find out about this uh, there by clicking on that and checking her out uh, in in the show notes. Um, Kalisa, your work, uh, this included, I think draws on a lot of different, we're going to talk about Multi-genre, which you're you're where you're clearly writing different forms, but your poetry has a sort of combined some different forms as well, does it not?
0: It does. People ask me that often. I I wanted to show the brevity and the range of my work in this book. Uh, You know how uh, there's a famous writer that says, when you write your debut book, write it like you will have no other book after that. (laughs) So I wanted to show every single tool I had in my tool shed. So I, I use a lot of different forms. And I think that that was a bit of me saying, hey, Um, poems that were meant to be spoken have craft in them too. And I'm very passionate about that. Um, That was what my thesis dissertation was about. So I wanted to show that these words just aren't, um, you know, oral uh, griot stories. They are crafted pieces that took hours of labor. Um, And so that's really what I I wanted to showcase in this book.
1: That's great. A couple more writing life questions. Uh, It's short, probably got a long answer. Maybe a short answer. Kalisa. why do you write?
0: I write because it's necessary. It's necessary for future generations that come after me. Like I said, I want to create a world that is safe for them to be. And I think that words have the power to change lives. But I also write because it's necessary for my healing. If I didn't write in some genre, way, shape or form, I think I would crumble. I don't think that I would be able to to be here and be sane. So, yeah.
1: (laughs) I understand. I understand. Another question, this will be the last one uh, before we jump over to Patreon. Um, You've written on all these different forms. Um, You you got started at some point and you've learned a lot along the way. If you could tell, you're still young, by the way, but if you could tell your younger writing self (laughs) something of value, that that young writer self, uh, something of value that uh, had she known it, You know, based on what you know now, it might help her. Can you boil it down to anything?
0: Yep. Three really important things. One, um, know when to say no, but know when to say yes. People tell you to say no often, but I will say, I have turned down these life-changing opportunities because I was not prepared. And so that's number one, say yes and do your research about who's giving you the offer because I've turned down some things that I'm like, man. The second thing piggybacks on that is network. Oh my goodness, meet as many people as possible. That's how my book got published. I was networking at the AWP conference and they asked me what my book was. I was working on, so network and be open to doing so, meeting new people. And then the third thing is, don't be shaken by rejection. Writing is all about people telling you no and them telling you that your work isn't um good or they don't like it. So you have to be strong and be a bolder and a force and keep pushing and keep submitting.
1: All right, that's great. Well, can't think of a better way to bring this episode to a close uh listeners you can hear us talk more at uh, patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash charlotte readers podcast um and uh yeah we're gonna have fun doing that uh multi-genre publishing and writing discussion kalisa uh, congratulations on the book again and uh, thanks so much for being a part of charlotte readers podcast
0: thank you so much for having me
1: well that's it for today another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on.
0: If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land.
1: And if you're inclined to help us, help authors, give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter.
0: You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com.
1: Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.
0: Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to Queen City